but also because he's a He's one of the generations of, of younger, if I might say so, from my old age here, um, uh, or middle age, no, I wouldn't, younger lamas, um, who has come to the West um, and is tremendously open-minded and warm-hearted and very curious about our culture and in a way, I think, more open-minded than most people I know who go to other parts of the world and just wants to learn in all kinds of ways about us, about the Western culture, about world culture, um, and how to, through that learning, how to offer these magnificent teachings that he's been steeped in since his childhood in a way that really uh, helps and serves the, the Dharma of liberation. And he's funny and you'll hear, and honest and wise, and also tremendously human. Um, which helps a lot because there's this whole idealization thing. You see the, you know, the gold color and the robes, and you think, oh my gosh, he's really enlightened, which he might be. You know, I don't know. You can ask him. I don't know. But then you imagine what that's really going to be like. You know, and then you read his book and you see, you know, his anxiety and his traumas and things like that, which he works with as practice. You see his humanity, um, which quite honestly is a part of awakening. Awakening isn't separate from humanity. It is the very, it's the very place to express awakening. So anyway, Rinpoche, what I thought I would do, if, if it's all right with you, is, because we have a couple of hours, is to teach a little bit, um, talk for 10, 15 minutes, and then lead a bit of a meditation, and then start a dialogue where I have some questions and passages from your book to ask you about, and whatever you want to say or do. Does that sound okay? He's so amenable. It's really, you know. <laughs> Plus, which he doesn't have to work now. He can sit quietly for a little bit, digest his dinner. So, since Rinpoche is also a Dzogchen master of the lineage of Tibetan teachings that is a direct pointing to awakening and to the nature of liberation, I want to touch on the question of enlightenment itself. Um, and I'll get to it in a moment, but first a story. Um, and I'm not quite sure how the story fits in, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, um, Ludwig van Beethoven, the great composer, um, became deaf as his life went on, even though he was this magnificent composer and musician and, and uh, um, he, you know, he led the or he was the orchestral conductor. And for the last part of his life he became so deaf he couldn't hear anything. He still composed a hundred amazing pieces of music while he was deaf. And one of the last major pieces he did, his last symphony, the Ninth Symphony, premiered in Vienna, Austria in 1824 at the Carnator Theater. Um, and it was the first stage appearance that Beethoven made in 12 years. And so all of Vienna and all the people interested in music crowded the theater. And while Beethoven was conducting center stage, the performance was quietly directed on the side by Michael Umlauf, the theater's Kapellmeister, the chorus director who instructed all the singers and musicians to ignore totally Beethoven because he was deaf <laughs> and quickly turning the pages of his score and beating time for an orchestra he couldn't hear and to watch him instead. 
And the first violinist, Joseph Bohm, who played on that day, wrote this. He said, Beethoven directed the Magnificent Symphony, this piece himself. He stood before the lectern and gesticulated furiously. At times he rose, at other times he shrank to the ground. He moved as if he wanted to play all the instruments himself and sing for the whole chorus. And at the end of the symphony, with its ode to joy, it's really one of the great pieces of Western music, as the audience erupted into a standing ovation, Beethoven was still several measures off and still conducting wildly. It was then that the contralto, Caroline Unger, walked over and gently turned the disoriented composer to face the crowd. And seeing their reception and their standing ovation, though hearing nothing, he began to weep. And there's something in the story that I want to tell because it's as if we have the ideas of how things are supposed to be or who we are or what's going on in the world. And then there's something so much greater that's going on that we're a part of that's not in our program of the, the small sense of self, if you will. It's like that Ojibwe saying that everybody knows now. You know, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being, ca being carried by great winds across the sky. Um, and so we can get lost in our own inner dramas and so forth. And, and there's some bigger mystery, something magnificent, um, that is a part of us. I mean, the Beethoven composed it, but we don't recognize it. And I know for myself, I mean, recently, I've been going through some big family dilemmas and so forth, and I um, woke up in the middle of the night, and I'm lying in bed there, and I'm worried and pained and all of this stuff. And then I get up to sit, because when I lie in bed, I feel young, which is um, problematic in a certain way, because <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to handle all this stuff. And then I get up and I sit, and all of a sudden I, I take this seat you know, of practice that I've done for 40 years, and sometimes if it's really hard, I invite Buddha here and Kuan Yin there. Buddha's very calm, and Kuan Yin says they're there with a lot of compassion. And somehow their space opens up. And even in that difficulty, I breathe and I realize, oh, there's something so much bigger than the thing that I was worried about. Um, does that make sense to you? Now, I got a speeding ticket the other day, the first one, the first one I've had in like eight years. Um, and the cop who pulled me over said, didn't you see me? I, was, I, w I had my lights on and for, for like a long time behind you. But I was so in my drama. You know, it's like Beethoven, right? I just couldn't hear. And he said, well, what was going on with you? I said, you don't even want to know, officer. <laughs> but when I sit, when I, when I get up from lying down and feeling young and not, you know, not very wise, and I take a Dharma seat, um, then the lessons become clear to make space, to let go, to hold it all with compassion. It's a very different thing. So, one of the things that I think is very helpful um, is to not use the word, the translation, enlightenment, which comes from the European historical history of the, the period of enlightenment. Um, a better word is awakening. Because enlightenment seems like it's far away and it's in the mountains of Tibet or it's in, you know, the forests of Burma or something and, you know, if you get a good rebirth and practice for many, many lifetimes, you might be lucky. Um, 
But awakening is something that's possible in any moment. And it's possible for you here exactly where you are. And it has all these words in the texts. It's called the blessed, the safety, the marvelous, purity, freedom, the harbor, the refuge, deliverance, completion, well-being, all these synonyms for awakening. Um, and there's, a, there's an amazing text from the Sutta, from the um, Sutta Samyutta Nikai, excuse me, where this uh, Brahman Kappa comes to the Buddha and he says to the Blessed One, there are so many beings stuck in the river of fear and the rush of being and in death and decay and loss and overwhelm. For our sake, sir, is there not an island? Is there not some solid ground beyond the reach of the changing conditions of birth and death and joy and sorrow um, that we are all in the rushing stream of? And the Buddha said, I will tell you, there is an island. It's an an interesting metaphor because I wouldn't have thought he would use that, but it was offered to him which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of non-possession and non-attachment that I call Nibbana. And there are people who, dwelling in awareness, in mindful awareness, realize this and are completely free here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara. That is, they cannot fall under the spell of birth and death. And this understanding of the island is, or nibbana or awakening is not some place that you go to or something that you find. It is, as it says in the text, dwelling in mindful awareness. There is nothing that is not contained in mindful awareness. The island itself is awareness. And there's nothing outside of awareness. You don't have any experience in the whole mystery of your humanity that is outside of awareness. So my teacher Ajahn Chah, um, who practiced in the forests of Thailand and Laos in the caves for many years, um, worked um, at the samadhi practices, jhana practices, all kinds of these various spiritual trainings, um, and developed himself over almost a decade And then finally, he went to visit um, the man who became his great teacher, Ajahn Man, the most famous forest master of the last century, and sat down with him, paid his respects, made his way to that temple or that monastery, sat down with him and told him about all the meditation experiences he had. And I'd done this and I'd seen that and I've had this insight and this luminosity and this samadhi. And Ajahn Man shook his head and he said, you've missed the point which is pretty tough after 10 years of being in caves and things like that. You've missed the point. And so he sat quietly and he listened. He said, all those experiences are the changing conditions of mind. Joy and sorrow, light and dark, um, expansion and contraction. um, All the experiences that you could have in meditation, just like you come and sit here, And, you know, it's like you go to the movies. You close your eyes and you sit, and sometimes it's a romantic comedy, and sometimes it's bad reruns of some old, you know, 70s 
television show of 20 years ago that you keep replaying, right, in your life. Sometimes it's a movie about conflict. You see all this, and he said, you've missed the point, because the point isn't about the experience at all. The point is to know who is experiencing all of this, to turn your attention to the one who knows, which was his phrase for this, and his words are this, do not seek after any states as if they are real, for they're not the essence of mind. All the states and experiences are transient, not the ultimate. Turn your attention to mind itself and become a witness to experience. The nature of mind must be seen, and then you can stop. You can put down all things. You can come to rest, because all arise and pass in awareness. And when you rest in awareness, there's nothing more to do and no more problem. So that was his instruction to Ajahn Chah. And in, with Ajahn Jamnian, who comes and teaches here sometimes, he talks about it as maha vipassana, or resting in pure vijnana. Um, now, part of what's important in understanding this, that awareness, resting in the space of awareness, rather than trying to have a particular experience, is the goal of meditation. Is because if we don't understand that, when we meditate and when we practice, um, we can get into meditation as self-improvement. And self-improvement's a fine thing. You can go to the gym, and you can jog, and you can get therapy, you know, and body work, and all those things. But it's also kind of endless, you may have noticed, and it's expensive, <laughs> right? And one of the things in this culture that, that uh, Rinpoche writes about, and that I want to ask him about, but that so became so clear in coming back from the temples and training in Asia for me, is that people would start to meditate, trying to be aware and mindful, and it would immediately bring up the kind of ambition, the desire to get something, you know that, have some particular experience, whatever it was. It would also bring up then self-judgment, I'm not doing it right, and unworthiness, I'll never get enlightened, you know. Um, and um, all the kinds of self-hatred that are really common in this culture, um, how we're supposed to be. And I like this line I read often from the author, Florida Scott Maxwell. She writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. <laughs> and we've kind of internalized that. And we, Am I getting better? Am I getting better? Is it, you know? And we get on a like inner meditative treadmill of thinking that there's some experience that's going to save us, or that's the right experience, or that will liberate us. But the point isn't liberation there, it's actually awareness itself. It's trusting that we can be the space of awareness, the witnessing experience. Or we sit and we worry not just about ourselves and am I doing it okay, we also sit with the sorrows of the world. You know, with the continuing warfare and racism, and environmental destruction and injustice and the tragedies in Tibet and Palestine and, you know, so many places. And we carry those. I think, well, what do I do with that? This world has, you know, almost unbearable beauty and an ocean of tears. And we can sort of take it personally in some way. It's not that you don't need to respond, you do, but in a different way. So what I saw and what Rinpoche writes about um, 
is that instead of making mindfulness a self-improvement project that you know you succeed or fail in, what we have needed to do was to bring in loving-kindness and compassion a lot. And Rinpoche just taught this retreat with Sharon Salzberg, um, and it had this beautiful blend together, the, the two of them, of a great deal of compassion and loving-kindness wedded in with the training of awareness. Um, so that when you add love, or when you make it part of the fabric of practice, it allows you to step out of the small sense of self, the sense of worry and me and mine and how it is. Love just starts to dissolve that, like sugar in water. Um, and instead of being mindful, you become loving awareness. You become awareness that's loving. And that loving awareness really dissolves, as I was saying, sitting in the middle of the night with my own difficulties, that becomes, it's like Buddha and Kuan Yin are with you, it becomes the space that can hold with the heart and the mind in this spacious way, the way things are. I heard an old Sufi teacher translate Om Mani Pemi Hum, which is this great Tibetan mantra, the jewel in the lotus, in this very simple way, I don't even know if it's accurate, but his translation was, the jewel is the mind and the lotus is the heart. He said it means the head and the heart are not apart, that somehow they're wedded. That was sort of the simple Sufi translation. And in some way it spoke to me, even if it's wrong. You can, <laughs> Rimeje can correct that. But there's some way, in Sanskrit, when you have the word citta, for mind it doesn't mean the thinking brain. It actually means the heart mind, something here. Um, when the Dalai Lama escaped from Tibet, he said that the person he most wanted to visit in India, um, who actually had died um, a, a few years before he got out, was a teacher named, a sage named Ramana Maharshi. And Ramana, who was this wonderful master in South India, his teaching was, he would look at you and say, just inquire, who am I? Who is it that took this body? Who is it that's having these thoughts and feelings? Turn your attention to the one who knows, to the knowing itself. But he did something else. He also sat silently with people and he would look at them. And he would look at them with what's called in India the glance of mercy. He would look at them with so much love that they couldn't really maybe know for themselves. So no judgment, so much love that they would somehow remember, oh, Oh, all these troubles, all these things I think about themselves, there's something so much bigger than that, who I really am. And so he too blended that to make this kind of loving awareness. The Buddha says in a couple of the texts in the Rahula Sutra, he says, make your mind like space or the sky where all things can arise, rainbows, clouds, storms, and the space is clear. Make your mind like that. Or he says, if you take a spoon of salt and put it in a cup of water and drink it, the water's salty. But if you put the salt in the lake, then you drink the water and the water is pure and clear. Make your mind vast like the sky or like, this, like the lake. Um, or as Leonard Cohen, the musician, says, if you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. Kind of a poetic way to say it, right? Um, and Ajahn Chah would talk about it as becoming the one who knows, becoming the, wi- 
resting in the witnessing awareness, loving awareness. So what I want to do is lead about a 10 or 15 minute meditation and then have some questions for Rinpoche in dialogue or anything that he wants to say about all the things that I started to talk about, um, corrections included. Um, uh, so let yourself sit comfortably. I think, Sean, is it warm in the middle there? Is it stuffy? Sean, would you turn on the, the air? That would be a good thing. It's just a lot of folks. Thank you for that. All right, so let yourself sit, sit um, comfortably. And there are different ways to get a sense of the space of awareness. Sometimes it's visual to sit out where there's a, a vast view or to open your eyes and and so forth, or sometimes, like Ramana Maharshi said, turn your attention back to the knowing, to the one who knows, um, which is also similar to the instructions that you would find in Tibetan Dzogchen, um, or Ajahn Chah's resting in um, the one, being the one who knows. Um, but this practice is one that uses a different doorway for the same space of awareness. It's the gateway of sound. And so with your body sitting at ease. Let your eyes close gently for this time. And begin just to listen without trying to change anything. Come into your body and be present. Feel your breath, the state of your body a little bit just here. Allow a bit of relaxation, no matter where or what experience you're having, relax with it. And as you sit quietly, let your attention shift from the sense of your body being seated or the thoughts that may be coming or feelings that are present. And bring your attention to the doorway of the ear to hear the sounds that arise and pass so spontaneously. These words that come and disappear. The soft sounds in the room. The distant sounds. the silence between the words. Listen to and hear the sound of the bells.
the sounds appear like clouds and vanish, leaving no trace. And as you listen, relaxed and open, let yourself feel or sense or imagine any way you can that your mind is not limited to your head. Let yourself feel or imagine or sense that your mind is as big as this whole room and even bigger so that the most distant sounds arise like clouds or bubbles in the vast open space of your own mind. Imagine or feel or sense that your mind extends beyond this room like the whole open vast sky. And these words arise like clouds and vanish, disappear. And the bells appear like clouds and vanish leaving no trace. Relax in this space of awareness. Trust it. Rest in it. It is your home. And notice, too, just as sounds appear and disappear in this vast space of knowing, how thoughts and images also arise. Picture thoughts, word thoughts, appear like bubbles or clouds, telling a story, showing an image, arising for a few moments, and then vanishing without a trace. Sounds come and go, and thoughts and images appear and disappear. Rest in the vast space of awareness. Trust it. Relax into it.
and notice too just as thoughts and images arise and pass, how the sensations of the body float and change. If you feel carefully, there's no solid body, no head or torso, nor limbs. There are areas of pressure and warmth and cool and tingling and vibration, the elements surrounded by space, floating in the space of awareness. And even the breath, there's no in or out. The breath moves like a breeze in space. Feel the body, it's not solid, but a river of floating sensations. The change, like the thoughts and sounds, in the vast space of mind. Sounds come and go like clouds or bubbles. Thoughts and feelings arise like storms and rainbows, images, and disappear leaving no trace. Sensations float and change slowly. Rest in the vastness in the loving awareness itself. And finally, as you sit with this space of awareness, bring in the quality of love and compassion for all the times you forget who you are, for all the times you get frightened and small and contracted, that you don't have this spacious and vast perspective. And for beings everywhere who are caught in fear and confusion, whose minds are closed, whose hearts are rigid, who suffer because they forget this innate freedom And let this vast space be filled with mercy and compassion that all beings might awaken, that you and all beings together might remember who you really are, the fundamental freedom that is always here for you, the island, the refuge, awareness itself. Trust it, rest in it. It is your own true nature, it is home. Now the last thing before I ring the bell is bring into heart and mind some problem or dilemma in your life. 
something difficult and sense what it's like to hold it, to allow it with this much compassion and love and this much awareness and space. Compassion of Kuan Yin and the spacious heart of the Buddha, this too. So, just one more little bit of comments. This practice works for some people and it doesn't for others. That's why there's 84,000 skillful means taught by the Buddha. So if it worked, great, and you got a sense of space, beautiful, and brought in love, excellent. If it didn't, don't worry about it. You can be mindful of your breath, you can do walking meditation, you can do Tonglen, there's a hundred other great practices. So don't use it to judge yourself but use it really as a reminder. And part of the reason that I wanted to talk about it tonight before now asking questions and listening to Rinpoche as well is to somehow wed. um, Sometimes the bad translation is the absolute and the relative. I think a better translation, Rinpoche, is the universal and the personal. The reason I, I say that is that Sometimes it's, when you say absolute and relative, it's as if the relative doesn't matter as much. Um, but in fact, the relative is an expression of the absolute, or the personal is wedded with the universal. They, somehow you take the ticket when you go to Disneyland and you get both the personal and the universal in, in human incarnation. It's the mystery that we have. Um, and they're both luminous. They're both just different dimensions of consciousness itself. So how these are wedded, how the freedom of heart is expressed, and then how it's actually embodied and acted. And I guess the last tiny thing I'll say is that at Ajahn Chah's, we were taught, rest in awareness, be the one who knows. And then there was this very fierce and beautiful discipline that we also learned not to step on an ant in the forest, to take care with our behavior and our words so that, yes, we could be spacious, Um, But at the same time, how we spoke and acted had to be wedded with that spaciousness. And that's one of the beautiful things in the theme of of his new book, of um, open heart and open mind. He's really trying to wed together the universal and the personal so that there's a kind of enactment of it, an embodiment of what you understand. There's a beautiful story you tell of this nurse in page 209 or something. Um, Do you want to tell it or could I read it or... Read it? Okay, and then maybe you'll say something about it. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, he said, he's, he's writing um, about uh, a person who sat with his mother during a long hospital stay because no one else in the family lived close enough to do so. 
And this man hated hospitals, the antiseptic smells, the bland food, but he stayed. Some of the nurses said nice things to him. You're such a good son. You're such a good boy. Once he shot back, I'm 60 years old. I'm not a boy, you know. But one nurse came in the room and after watching him for a while said, you're not doing what you want, what you want to do, but what you need to do. What the hell does that mean, he asked. She waited a moment, but didn't step back at his angry tone. She said simply, you're sitting here not because you want to, but because you believe it's the right thing to do. She went on, believe me, I've been a nurse for a lot of years and I can see the difference. You're not just sitting by the bed. You're not calling us every five minutes because your mom's in pain and you can't deal with it. You're sitting here attending to her because there's no one else to do it. She paused for a moment for, for asking, you don't know how much heart that takes, do you? And then she acknowledged him and left the room. And he never saw her again, he said. Was it an illusion, a messenger, an angel? You don't know how much heart that takes, do you? And he tells this story. Well, you can talk about why you tell this story. Um, but it's something I want to read it about, the wedding of what we know of spaciousness and the dedication. So, Rinpoche? Yeah, if you would. Make sure he's on. Yep. Is that okay? Yep. <laughs> you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> now I have restricted to use relative and ultimate. Ah. So I might use a little bit different relative and superficial. Mm. Is okay? Whatever you use. <laughs> it's all okay. Space for it all, right? Oh, we can use um, openness and phenomena. Usually we use that way also. So there is a, I usually call a simple insight, complex outside. And I think you have to be, in order to blend or synchronize these two, you have to be very simple in deep down. I usually call is mere I, M-E-R-E, not reified I, not solid I. It's come down to the I, the perceiver. So how you perceive phenomena, the experiencer, what kind of experiencer is mere open experiencing or you're experiencing from reified solid. So I think there's a really deep down who you, what you believe is I am very simple. I'm nothing. I'm almost like everybody. I am His Holiness Dalai Lama also have a diarrhea time to time. <laughs> and I think many of you also have a diarrhea. <laughs> Every time I go to India, I also have a diarrhea. <laughs> so why not? In the deep down, we all, I think, same. No matter how much you hold on social eye, social ego, means uh, I have these four eyes, mere eyes, and reified eye, solid I am, and needy eye, means 
all about me, I. Then there's the social I, which is you don't have any control that someone's gathered together and then trying to say, Oh, Rinpoche, you are so beautiful, smile. <laughs> and my I usually don't know how to identify it ourselves. Sometimes it goes to rear eye, sometimes come back to the mere eye, sometimes it goes to needy eye. So all of this is not really working. So finally, a bunch of people start to talk to exactly the same thing, what you want to hear. Wow, Rambashi, you have a beautiful smile. When I come, no smell, okay, smile. <laughs> so you are so good when I come nearby to you, when I see your smile, it makes me so happy. And then you hear one time, two times, maybe 30 people saying almost the same thing. Then you really like to identify yourself. I am that <laughs> smile. I have a great smiler. Wow. <laughs> Finally, I found myself. All this year, I couldn't find. Now, after 45 years old, I found it. Which is, I'm 45 years old. Then you hold on that tight with the rear fire eye. Very solid. Then, really, the social eye is very high maintenance. <laughs> because you don't control, you don't control, it's not who you are, it's people's projection. And they can change anytime, they can say anytime, depend on their mood, and how can you can control their mood, balance. So you always worry about trying to keep that smell, no, sorry, smile. Sorry, my English is not that good, but I'll try. Mm. So, then you hang on that for 24 hours, trying to maintain that I. And you forgot this basic well-being of, like, gentle I, which is, uh, Buddha's talking about, is, I am coming, I am going, the healthy I, not tight by, not solid, not like a, reified by the seriousness. It's kind of open and gentle flow, and that, I think, is who we are, more or less. Why we call it mirror, but that I is not also exists completely in the end, when you uh, fully awaken, uh, awakening, uh, reach nirvana, I'm not sure that I is exists or not. But as long as we have these five scandals, that healthy I is there. Every morning we take refuge. From now on, until I become enlightened, I take refuge. <coughs> so, Buddhists also believe on I, or me. But what kind of me? Solid? No. Mere. So, we always stuck on that social I. We become very complicated, complex. So you forgot the openness in deep down. So time to time, come back to the open, the basic well-being, and connect with the essence love. And you stay there, who we are. It is, as British say, it is innermost home. <laughs> so we are not in home. 
<coughs> we always cling on the social eye, which is we don't control and which is not who we are also. So there's a lot of complex. So the point is here, between the phenomena and the openness, we need to know how to dance. I usually call danced between relative and ultimate. Uh, if we don't know how to dance this, although we might know in the neocortex, but it might not feel in the amygdala. <coughs> and then our reptilian brain is still the same. So I think uh, you need to bring into the experience level. It's in who you are is very simple. But how you display and you danced all the complex. So the best example is His Holiness Dalai Lama. I think he has the most social eye. Social eye here means I'm doctor, I'm lawyer, I'm this, I'm rich, I'm that and that. <coughs> so if you hold on there 24 hours, I think it's a lot of suffering. So time to time come back to this simple eye, mere eye. So His Holiness, even in the dream, he never dreamt about Dalai Lama. He dreamed simple monk. So I don't think so he hold forever there. So transition between social eye and eye is very important. Can, can I ask you a question, Rinpoche, that's related to this and what you say in the book? And that, that is that um, when you talk about these different levels of eye, the social eye or the needy eye and so forth, <coughs> there's a way that people can hear it mistakenly right. and use it to judge themselves. Oh, the social eye is bad. I should only be you know, the transparent right. eye right. or the needy eye. Right. Um, but sometimes it seems also that there, that there needs to be right. respect for social eye or healing Definitely. if there's things. So how do, you, yeah. how do they fit together? Social eye makes money. <laughs> and we have to respect that. <laughs> and mere eye gives happiness. And we also need that. So the balance is important. And the best, if, you, if we can, I think... From the mere eye, if you can't uh, like a play as a compassionate bodhisattva social eye, I think that's the best way. Because you, are, you come back into the simplicity, needy eye is no longer active because you found the home. <laughs> and you don't need to feel, there's no hollowness there. Not holy, okay, hollow. So because of you don't, we don't experience essence of love, instead of essence of love, we have this hollow. And in, in order to fill the hollow, we become needy. Yeah. So now, there's not much needy, because we feel the simple beauty, openness, well-being, essence, spark is there. So, but we still have energy. So this energy direct to the connect with the social eye, and then change into the compassionate activity to help other sentient beings, or to help yourself make more money, or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not teenage, okay? Don't worry. My whatever is different then. <laughs> so, that I think... Because social eye, we need social eye, is also filling the hollow. 
before because small things are not making you happy anymore. Needy eye, cling on some small things is already old. Now you want to cling on big with the social, like a name or fame or whatever. And there, when you have that, then you start to fill, fill the gap here. And now you don't need that. So there's two kinds of people. One, when one you found a spiritual uh, well-being and the person becomes less active because there's no much needy eye need to fill in. So I think it's the wrong idea. So when you become more uh, happy here, then the love is okay, but you practice compassion. Now you can use your social eye to help other people. But not for you, because you are okay with this essence of love. But many people give up their job. Okay, I'm, finally I found something here, I don't work, I don't help. Then is the negative side. His Holiness, he mentioned that he will work until the last breath. But I think his essence of love is quite strong. But he still carry on this huge social eye. But his social eye hopefully is transformed into the compassion. I think if we can live like this, simple inside, complex outside. A little bit like Warren Buffett. <laughs> I heard that, you know, he's quite simple inside, but he used all his things, complex, but who, who, he, who, he, who, he, who he is, I think it's simple, he know that. But he don't stuck there. Many people, oh, I'm simple, I'm happy with the spiritual, little bit uh, enough money, retire happily, drink tea with the mindfulness, <laughs> and when I have a little bit of problem, give some Tonglen practice to other people, then at the end I feel great, no more guilt of doing something. I'm doing in my cushion, my way. So then you stuck there, that is called spiritual goody-goody. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit like sticky when I hear that, like, ooh, scary. Sticky, <laughs> <laughs> sticky dharma. Hmm. Very scary. Yeah. Sticky and scary. So I think uh, you have to go beyond that. So I call is cozy dharma. Oh, cozy. Wow, very good. Life is precious. I, took, I have a human precious life. Great. I'm contained. Wow. This is the great life. Uh. So the spiritual attachment is clinging you. And you're locked in that, uh, what do you call, uh, boundary. A bondage, spiritual bondage. I think we go out. That is only compassion can do it. Loving kindness cannot do it. Loving kindness is more like loving. There's still some attachment. Of course, and loving kindness can do it. But the compassion can destroy this goody goody. But in order to do really compassion, you have to have goody goody first. Otherwise, all become self, uh, self. Uh, 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 self-centered eye, self-cherishing. So this is really important. Stay with this because this is okay. Yes. This, uh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. 
I'm in order to have real compassion, you have to have love, love, love first. first. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes, is there something empty and you're trying yeah. to get people to yes. love you or it yes, looks yes. good or, or you're right. trying to make up for deficiencies. Yes. So there's some way in which you actually have to find a well-being yes. in yourself and then, but not stop there is what you're saying. Then, oh, well, then, course, you're, yeah. then, th then, then the train is ready to go out of the station or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> or whatever, exactly. Or I whatever. Yeah, whatever is different from my way. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You tell a story in your book about um, this flight attendant here, I notice, okay. um, that you're flying. Do you want to tell that story? Oh, or you want to the read smile it? one, or do you want me to read part of it? Maybe you want to. Maybe you read this. I read a little bit. Body leaf. Body leaf is better. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? Body leaf. Body leaf. Which one? Okay. Uh, oh. Uh, uh, body leaf. You show me. Where's that one? Oh, I remember the body leaf. It's in the yeah. middle somewhere so, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's actually closer toward the end. Now, where's body leaf? I'll find it. I also find out. Try yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> Here's Bodh Gaya. Okay. Body leaf. Uh, I'll bet it is. Where you put the Bodhi leaf, maybe. Oh, here's the leaf. Okay. Okay. So he's in. He's he's the. Here's the story. Um, yeah, I think this is good. Yeah. Okay. All uh, good, but. Yeah. <laughs> all good. It's all good. That's right. <laughs> all is the right. Bodhisattva. So so he he he's in he's in Bodh Gaya. Um, maybe you can read the. You want me to read all of it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you want uh, the whole deal? All right. How long is that? That's four pages, five, all right. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> so practice and study and teaching and help me break down some of okay, the pr yeah. problematic attachments to various levels of I, social I, needy I. Um, a few years back, I began to feel uncomfortable. After reflecting for a while, I realized I was caught up in the stage of practice that I've learned to describe as cozy dharma or cozy realization. Um, a stage at which one feels a little proud of one's understanding and superficially content. And one thinks, oh, the Dharma, it's so good, I'm happy. Yet lurking underneath the complacency is a nagging discomfort, a feeling that the Dharma must offer something grander and more fulfilling than just coziness. I happened to be teaching in Bodh Gaya at the time, the place where the Buddha attained the full understanding of the suffering of living beings and the means to alleviate it. It's a, really a powerful place. And as I look back over my life, my practice, what I'd learned as a student and teaching others and my relationships, family and friends, I began to sense there was something missing. Yes, I'd managed to reconnect with my basic spark and had taught the methods of doing so to thousands of students, but my hero's heart, the real essence of bodhicitta, which was the awakened heart, was only half there, half awake. I'd recognize in myself while teaching, for example, a tendency to get tired, a feeling of, oh, I'd like to finish this up soon. I'd like to go, go here. I'd like to go there. I'd like to be doing something else. Maybe let's go to a movie or go to rest. I felt the same unrest while conducting the work involved in organizing, building, repairing mon monasteries and nunneries. Even my meditation sessions had become a bit tiresome. Just wanted to sit back and relax, watch television with my wife and daughters. I was tired, distracted, sometimes bored. But in Bodh Gaya, which offers few distractions, I began to think about the many great teachers who had helped and encouraged me. They never seemed to be tired. 
their enthusiasm for whatever project they were engaged never flagged. Maybe they'd get tired physically, but they never lost an inner strength to keep going. And when I looked at my own life, I realized I was losing inner strength because I wasn't completely committed to the goal of absolute bodhicitta. I was locked in my coziness, making boundaries between my work, my life, my practice, and my family life. And even though I'd broken through various layers of self, I realized there was another layer to break through of spiritual coziness. So one evening, after I finished teachings, I went to the area of Bodh Gaya that includes these ancient temples and where the tree grows of the cutting from the original Bodhi tree. And I didn't tell anyone where I was going. I just went by myself with the determination to make a vow to work selflessly for the benefit of all beings, to break beyond the level of complacency which I'd allowed myself to continue to do things as long as they made me happy. It was about sunset, a time that particularly resonates with me as a moment of tenderness. The day's almost gone, but there's still light, a poignant moment of transition between the clarity of daylight and the confusion of darkness, a moment in which reality appears to shift and transform. I sat under the Bodhi tree and prayed, and then I circumambulated it three times while reciting the Bodhisattva vow, which in essence goes like this, from now on until I attain complete freedom from pain and suffering, I dedicate myself wholly and completely without personal reward to the work for the benefit of all sentient beings. And I determined I would really take on the Bodhisattva commitment from the depths of my heart. Just at the moment I completed my vow, I felt something lightly glance off my head. I opened my eyes and saw at my feet a leaf from the Bodhi tree. What happened next was quite surprising. I'd been aware of people on either side of me near the Bodhi tree. I thought they were chanting or praying, but they'd actually been waiting for a leaf to fall. It's illegal to cut a leaf from that Bodhi tree, otherwise it would be just bare branches. No one can collect a leaf unless it falls naturally. Suddenly, from all around, people began crowding and grabbing for the fallen leaf. I have to confess, I felt a similar desire to pick up the leaf and claim it for myself, and since it had fallen right in front of me, I grabbed it. All of this happened in the space of a few seconds. I was holding the leaf thinking, I won. <laughs> the Bodhi tree had sent a leaf to me, and now I have it. I must be such a good person, such a good practitioner. <clears throat> and as I walked away, though, I began to feel quite guilty. You're such a lazy Bodhisattva, I told myself. You took a vow to dedicate your life to all sentient beings, but you can't give up this little leaf for someone else? What kind of a vow is that? You're still holding on to it. You're cherishing it. You're clinging to the idea of receiving some special sign or blessing. I felt so sad and angry, I almost ripped up the leaf and threw it to the ground. <laughs> then another voice came from nowhere. Keep this leaf as a reminder of how easy it is to break the commitment to work for the benefit of others. You might say the words as sincerely as you can, but it's your actions that really count that really determine whether or not you're clinging to coziness or self-importance or separateness or fear. A few days later, I asked one of my students to put the leaf in a frame along with a line or two I'd written about the experience. I brought the frame leaf back to my home in Nepal and hung it on the wall of the staircase going from the first level up to my bedroom so I could remind myself every night as I went to bed and every morning as I came downstairs to start my day with the commitment and how easy it is to break it. After a month or so, I realized that maybe the placement wasn't so good. It's easy to avoid looking at the wall while going up and down the stairs. 
ultimately my wife, who is so much wiser than I in many ways, as wives are, hung the leaf and my note over our bed. So when I'm at home, it's always over my head when I go to sleep at night and when I wake in the morning. It's as much a part of my dreams as of my waking life. And when I see this framed leaf, I'm reminded that nurturing the spark of being involves two related efforts. The first, of course, entails connecting with our basic openness, intelligence, and warmth. The second necessitates extending the potential we've discovered within ourselves outward into the ways in which we conduct ourselves with everyone and everything we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So I have a quick question. Mm. Should, should we take a 10-minute break for bathroom and stretch, or are you okay for another 40 minutes? Is it all right? Can we just stay? Okay. And if you need to go out, um, feel free and come back if that's... All right, so Rimache, having mm. told that story um, and read that, um, here we are. You know, people, some who are just beginning practice, some who've been practicing for a few years, some who've been practicing for a very mm. long time. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you say to people at different stages of practice? How, yeah. do, you, how do you use that understanding for yeah. us? I think um, the fundamental basic is, uh, I think we have to uh, reconnect with essence love. Uh, that means I have uh, four different kind of loves again. You I like lists. I like lists. Like list you and the Buddha, you're quite... I'm not sure Buddha, but I like Buddha like lists. Yeah. a lot okay. of lists. The Four Noble <laughs> Truths, the Eightfold Path. Yeah. So I, I feel good now. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank you. You're Thank a, you. You're a, they call it, you're a company man, right? <laughs> okay. You're a good company. <laughs> Wow, good. <laughs> <coughs> so, essence love, I will count the number first, then I will explain you. Uh, essence love. Uh, love ba based on attachment, normal love, and wounded love, and boundless love. So I think boundless love is quite popular in the Buddhist practice. Uh, but I came to this country, I think, 19 years ago. I don't stay all the time here. But as Jack mentioned, I like to know and see and feel about the, your culture, your background, your emotional well-being and cognitive understanding. So, I found out that uh, even if you practice boundless love, but boundless love without essence love, it cannot be boundless. The boundless love also becomes self-cherishing love. So I look into uh, many areas of uh, lives, and I think here in America, your cognitive-based intellectual education is fantastic very great that even in the middle of night there's no light you still can find spoon and yogurt 
<laughs> well organized structure, many boxes, and you know what to put into what kind of box. All these levels are fantastic. And we don't have in Nepal. If we look spoon and yogurt in daytime, we cannot find. In chaotic, not box. There is a box, but none, there's nothing to put in the box. Put in the wrong box. But happy. You look at the traffic, they stop all in one place, but taxi drivers still happy, thinking, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> but you're at the backside of the car, please do something, but <laughs> do you want that kind of life? I don't think so. I don't want. Completely not organized. But well-being is here. But, sorry to say that, I come here, everything is working externally, with the mind. But in the feeling, in the subtle body, in the body area, especially around emotional area, a little bit screw up. So I thought, why is this happening? And I look into many uh, of my own experience, my life, your lives. And I asked many of my uh, special uh, students, teachers. I think the conclusion is, I think we are not, we are not nurturing the essence love. What that means, essence love means the basic spark of human being. When you are a baby, you have this essence love is very strong. Want to do something, want to open, want to jump, want to take risk. There's a, a spontaneous, there's a humor, there's a joy in the heart. Mm. But head is not developed yet. And we push so much energy on trying to develop head and give a lot of subtle fear into the child's mind. I'm not uh, criticizing, but how happened like that? To develop the cognitive-based intellectual education, and then once you have that, you become something. And then that uh, put a lot of uh, subtle, although we call like a, we encourage them. But how are you going to encourage? Encourage with hope, nice things, but at the same time, there's a fear. So over the years of collection of the fear went into the subtle body. And then mind become very good, but the body become a little bit numb. And the body and mind become a little bit of disconnect. So then there's a layers happened. Reify eye, needy eye, social eye, but you lost the flame of the essence of love. No matter what kind of wood you want to put, but there's no fire, there's no, there's no flame, there's no fire. So whatever one to practice, boundless practice, loving kindness, all become head-oriented, not feeling-oriented. Because the spark in deep down is a team or cover 
but not completely disappear, but still there. So I thought this book is, I think, the mainly how to reconnect the basic child heart, which is the warm essence love, love before giving and taking, but the love itself, unconditional love, not with the object, just just experience, you feel that. And that we have to nurture. But in order to nurture this, you use any technique from outside, it will not going to help. Even you buy a car, even you buy a chocolate, even you go into the beautiful health store I went today. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end, you will be a hollow here. You, you might uh, distract it by for a while, but then there's a hollow. So, how to let it go or deconstruct ego fixation and open up, as Jack said, open into the space without hope and fear, then the, the baby uh, humor heart is start to open. When that open, you need to nurture without hope and fear again. When that grows, then there's a hope of really loving kindness from the feeling, not from the thinking. So really, all the time, many of Tibetan Buddhist practice went into the head, not went to the body also. So I think I call body enlightenment. Mm. Once we have a body enlightenment, I think then many things subconscious start to practice. Dharma and the reptilian brain start to move uh, Dharma and the body start to become the Dharma. I think then there's a hope. Uh, uh, so for awakening. So Rinpoche, um, one of the things that you talk about in your book, you talk about the different dimensions of mindfulness or right. mindful awareness. Right. Right. Um, and what I've noticed as I've taught and practiced myself over yeah. the years, similar to what you write about, is that we develop unevenly. Right. That is to say, um, some people might develop, as you say, cognitively really well, but they can't find right. their body. Right. There's this beautiful poem by Eduardo Galeano, who's a wonderful Latino poet. He writes, the church says the body's a sin, and that's in us a lot because it's in our <coughs> culture oh, the body's okay. bad. Science says the body is a machine. Mm. The marketplace says the body is good business. <laughs> the body says I am a fiesta. What's that? You know, I am a, and there's some way, fiesta, is, fiesta like, is like a party, a celebration. Oh. And there's some way in which um, we've lost the sense of joy. Right. What I notice is this, in the dimensions of mindfulness, um, that we can be well developed in one way and right. not in another. So you can have an Olympic athlete, right. very good, or a football player, right. who's very, very good in their body, but emotionally idiot, right? right. right? Not, not very, well, you know. Or you can have university professor, Nobel laureate, brilliant, right. Right. can't find their shoes in right. their yeah. feet, not in their body. Or somebody even who has emotional awareness, but maybe doesn't know about Nepal. thoughts uh, and so forth. And it seems like, um, and, I, uh, and I sort of see it in your book as well, that when we develop this love and this joy, right. and love and joy seem to come together. Right. If, it's not, if there isn't joy, it's not love, right. something else. 
But when we do it, we then have to actually be willing to turn toward the body, toward emotions, right. toward the mind, and in some way f fulfill the wholeness that right. we are. Does that right. sound right to you? Am well, I? Of course. Yes? Very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter, but cause it's, it's how it seems. But yeah, th yeah. there's some way. Because people think, oh, automatically, if I can find my breath, or right. if I can do a retreat, or if I can do compassion practice, right. then everything will be hunky-dory. It'll right. all take care of itself, right. and I don't have to pay attention to my body right. or my yeah. emotions or something. Yeah. I think in Vipassana, mm. I think has a beautiful practice for mindfulness, mindfulness of body, mm. and mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of dharma or samadhi. Uh, I call mindfulness of space, mm -hmm. the fourth mm -hmm. one. So I think if you practice especially mindfulness of feeling, it's wonderful. Actually, I usually make three uh, categories again. Uh, it's called uh, emotional uh, transformation, which is connected with the subtle body, mood, feeling is one area. And another area is uh, cognitive stability, which is uh, a development of like pure mindfulness, attention, awareness, uh, like a cognitive thinking correctly is one. And next third one is the reification, like a, the I call uh, desolidified ego fixation. So these three things comes together, then we lost the space. Can I share one story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Yeah. Mm. I think um, about 19 years ago, I went to um, Malaysia. There's a very high building called Twin Tower. <laughs> In order to cross that building, you had to go through a bridge. The bridge is made out of glass. High up if from the bridge, if you see down, people are this much. It's very small, very high. So I went up there with one of my monk friends called Tashi, 19 years ago. Then I went there. I want to go. I finished visit this one. I like to go to the next one. So I walk on the bridge. <coughs> Just walk. After five steps, Something really happened, scary things happened inside of me. The feeling, really I felt that if you walk one more step, you're going to die. So I walk back. <laughs> uh, it's a good decision, no? <coughs> In case if I die, then I might not be here now to see all of you. So I went back. Then I analyzed. Use neocortex, thinking mind. Okay, how is this bridge made out of? Wow, so thick glass. glass. And I look all around, very safe. And some very high, tall, fat, sorry. They can walk on the bridge, they didn't fall down. I was thin at that time, I have four packs. <laughs> Now I have a one-pack, sorry. <laughs> and I'm a little bit like this, push-up. Those days, quite thin, quite fit. Although short, but it's okay. 
then uh, I look at oh some couples hugging and taking photos, all all so many things happening on the bridge. So now I thought, okay, no problem. My mind completely understood. My cognitive mind completely understood. I have completely uh, confidence, so I'm not going to die there. So I started to walk, second time. What do you think? I cross or no? <laughs> Why not? It's so safe. The first st stop was intelligent, because in case the bridge is not so good, so emotional, rings some bell, gives some message, then you know, then you can check. It gives opportunity to check the mind. But second time, I already checked, and it's very safe. Why not? I cannot cross. I can or cannot? Can. <coughs> can, huh? <laughs> cannot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I cannot. <laughs> so I walk. Then I thought, actually, I thought, oh, no problem now. It's so safe. Because my friend monk is already crossed. He said, Rinpoche, come. There's no problem. <laughs> I'm okay. You should be okay, Soro. So I walk. Five times, five steps, with the full determination, full confidence, I'm safe. But my body took over. Yeah. My feeling took over. Again, zoom happened at the same time. So no way I could cross. So I come back again, same place. <laughs> so now important thing is, the third time, I realized, okay, I think this is, the, this is common, you know. But the very important thing here is, Luckily, I have a little bit of Buddhist background. <laughs> Give me an opportunity to see which is the fact or which is from pattern, from um, uh, uh, trauma. So then I know, okay, now it's not outside. Outside is safe. It must be something inside, internal problem, internal things. So I scan all my life, what happened before. So when I was a, a lot of Essence love when I was a young, like open heart. I used like to climb trees, so but I didn't I didn't develop my head, <laughs> so I close I uh, hold on the branch, fell down, from the tree many times. So I have that leftover residue inside of my nerve or subtle body, not in my mind. Mind knows it's, it's okay, but the body not allowed me to go. So I saw, oh, yeah, I think this is from that trauma, still there. But whenever we don't have a condition, it's not triggered outside. But when the condition comes, it comes out. So it's hiddenly not in the body. So what, what, what can we do now? So there's a few choices. Shall I go down same elevator <laughs> and walk and take another elevator, go up? <laughs> I don't have a time. I'm not talking about only that bridge. We have so many bridges. If you want to cross the bridges, what is the solution? Run. <laughs> Go down and walk up there. That, I think, is take my money and time. So I think I don't have that. Or shall I ask my monk to carry me? <laughs> I don't think so. When I need him to cross my other bridges, he might not be there. Otherwise, I have to carry him all my life. 
for for cross some other bridges. So I think number one is not okay. Number third is force yourself to go. Yeah, you force yourself. No, not so good idea. Yeah, <coughs> or never cross the bridge. Whole life. Oh, that bridge is terrible. I'm not going to go there. Run away from the bridge, or never visit the bridge, or completely ignore a bridge, or you like to transform. One another uh, option is like to transform. Yeah, you transform, then could cross the bridge. I think it's quite a good idea, no? So now how? How to transform? So I stay there. Lucky I have a little bit of Buddhist background again. So, so I start to send text messages. <coughs> <laughs> Not my friend. From neocortex to amygdala. From my mind to my body. Because my mind understood is safe. But my body is not understanding. So a communication starts. So that, but way of sending text need to be very loving. Otherwise, text might not receive. It might go into the what? Uh, trash. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will not receive by the body. Usually, mind goes way up and trying to be smart or smart and trying to tell the body, oh, I think I know it, you don't know. So we give this kind of message and the body become more wound, more wounded. So I start to send text messages with nice rose envelope. <laughs> Very kind rose envelope and inside the message, you know, the message says, it is real but not true. This mantra I send. Not one time, hundred times. <laughs> In Tibetan we have hundred thousand prostration. So, but luckily I have my line is quite good. If you want to send the message, you have to have a body and mind have a good connection. That's why the vipassana practice is very good for mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling. So if mind and feeling are good connection, then any message sent to the feeling, feeling is part of subtle body. And feelings start to open. So message says it is r- real but not true. Means real means feeling is real. The scary feeling is real, it's not joke. For my monk is not real and not true. But for me is real but not true. True. Because I really scare. And then I start to accept that. I'm just no judgment, completely open heart, love to, to your all habitual pattern. And then you, okay, it's, it is true. But if you say it is true and real, then you're supporting a wrong, wrong thing. Your habitual pattern should have a right message. <coughs> it is wrong because what I felt is many, many years ago, but the memory the old leftover residue is still activating. When that activating, your mind thinks is real and true. 
and you identified with your ego fixation with that. That is me. So thinking support. When feeling become like this, thinking also support, and ego also is me. And we tied up. There's no openness. There's no space. When there's no space, there's no openness. We reinforce our habitual pattern more stronger. A wrong belief. So I send this patient many, many, many times again, again. Some point my body start to understand. It take time. Mind understand like this. Body understand so many after message. Slowly body says, "Let's try." <laughs> Why not? Let's try. <laughs> But then he said, "Let's go." You cannot do that. Then I was quite strong in my arm, so I hold the railing. I told talk to my body. If we fell down, I'm going to protect you. <laughs> But for the head, it's quite stupid, no? How are you going to protect? But for the feeling, it is very wise. Sometimes I call stupid wise. Mm, uh, stupid for the head, wise for the heart. So you hold. Then, but the, the subtle, the, the body, energy body is already affected my gross body. My gross body also shaking. So I step a little bit. The gross body need to feel also confidence. So I step a little bit, come back, step, hold, step, hold, and then the solid, of course, glass, yeah. So hold for a while. Then in the middle, I slowly let it go, and I walk. I walk one time, then I walk again this side, and again walk. <laughs> so I cr- could cross that bridge actually. So now I don't have this height problem. Thank you. I feel much better <laughs> <laughs> for my subtle body. <laughs> so I think this three combination is very, very important. I think. So when when people come to you, Rinpoche, mm. as students, um, and you have a feeling that there's something that's not so developed, maybe they're lost in body trauma. Right. Or maybe they have a lot of emotions that right. they don't know. Do you give different practices to different people? Because mm-hmm. I know when people come to me, and if it feels like there's stuff going on in their body, right. Right. I really try to direct them right. ways that they can work with the things that are happening in their body. Do you do that? Do you give different? I don't have uh, so much time individually, but I give variety method, and I ask them to choose whatever works for you. I, I address, you know, like a Nepali problem, which is not developed cognitive, and a high society a speed based on, and with the uh, what do you call serious. I think here is very serious everything. We taught seriousness, serious fear, and responsible link, and we installed. So uh, when you grow up, we. We need the responsible, but the fear also activated at the same time, unnecessary. It's a leftover, but healthy fear is not there. The extra fear is still there. Mm. So while we're developing the uh, responsible, we need the fear at the young time, condition. But the fear condition becomes so much, and we forgot to wash teeth, eat, 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 and forgot to wash. So I think I'm doing. To how to wash their extra fear, 
I think you're doing that also. So I think it's a, I give a different methods for mm-hmm. uh, four or five different methods. Then I ask, okay, where you are stuck, need to come to the body, then come more. Maybe body is like very grounded, but nothing develop here. So maybe more develop. So. So you, in that way, you also trust people. You say, "All right, here are these yes. things, and now you must look into yourself yes. Yes. and feel and be respectful. What what is asking for development, or right. where are you caught, or where yeah. are you stuck?" Yeah. And it really places the practice right. into their hands. Yeah. I have uh, two teams. One is called um, becoming healthy human being, mm. and this is uh, the first level. Uh, and then the second level is go beyond. Human, which is awakening, fully awakening, mm-hmm. enlightenment. I'm sorry to use that word again. Yeah. It's, it's ingrained in myself in the reptilian brain. <laughs> and the second level depends on the first level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I really found it. This is interesting. Uh, without a healthy human being. I think you really cannot, uh, like, a, you cannot really open also. Yeah. You cannot awake also. Yeah. Because you're really trapped. So there, I think, psychology, the modern psychology, I think, uh, might have a great contribute to work with that. Yeah. People, mm. people did. Have you heard the phrase um, spiritual bypass? Yes. Yeah. So, so if I if I meditate and practice, then I don't have to deal with right, my right. body or with the fears yeah, or yeah, trauma yeah. and it's somehow I think you want to skip over. Yeah, that's not working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We tried that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in t- t- does that happen in, in Nepal and Tibet? Do people also yes. is, do the yeah, same? Yeah, yeah, they have yeah. They have a different problem. How, in what way? Um, more like a like you know, whole session of meditation, they might sleep. Ah. <laughs> to relax. There's no w- speedy wind is pushing them. It's just like, come back. Dull. <laughs> I call this cow meditation. <laughs> Holy cow. <right>? Holy. <laughs> I think any cow. <laughs> so you go in the middle of Nepal, you know, the road. I think many of you went there, and then a bunch of cows stay together. <laughs> and then they really practice stillness. <laughs> <laughs> like this, look, look at me, like this. <laughs> uh, many cars going, chicken people, everything, but they still can do that. <laughs> when I was in the high speed, when I look at them, wow, it calms me down. So that, I think, Tibet, I think, uh, many, uh, of course, majority, they just sit like this. (laughs) Just like... uh, In the West? (laughs) 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 (laughs)
strikes to never. So I teach a little differently. So there I teach how to make shopping list. Because they just feel like they want to go into this store and then just buy. And then they feel like they want to go one mile after, they just go. Then, oh, I forgot to buy, you come back to the, the first store. It's like a lot of time wasting, all this zigzag, you know, really not working at all. Very suffering. Really, I come from that, I'm really tired. The country is not working, no electricity, no water, garbage everywhere, but people are still thinking happy. Not pretend happy, happy. When I was in Budgaya, uh, Varanasi, and then, wow, I came around 5 o'clock, then I wanted to see the Ganga River. So I was, <laughs> went by a small rickshaw. Wow, everybody is, hi, hello. And, you know, they do like this, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so I also did the rickshaw. I have this mood decorated to me. I also like, ah, like that. So when we reach the Ganga, then there's a one boat coming. Proper boat, very nice boat. The proper tourist inside the boat wow. with the camera, Nikon camera, a nice dress, the head, and sun cream. <laughs> Coming like this. So I say, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Later I realized it's German tourist. I'm joking, but <laughs> no, no, it's, it's real, they are German, but um, it's very uptight, like, you know, uh, serious. But, you know, but well-dressed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think all my message is, is like, uh, I think the heart, the child heart and grown-up head need to come together. But don't be child heart and child head, please. <laughs> That, that is not working. But grown-up head and a grown-up heart also not so good. Head always needs to grow, but come back to the feeling heart. That is your home. Then simple. Heart, in order to survive the heart, it needs to be very simple. Sometimes I make joke, like Nepali body and uh, West hat put together, but that you cannot do it, yeah? Mm. It's not ethical. So, <laughs> so head, I think... Head we, transplant. <laughs> so I think here, actually, America, you don't need that much. Just little shift, actually, is already there. Your head is so wonderful. I really love your head. <laughs> really, really. No joking. I really admire. Wow. Immediately understood. Immediately can understand. Nepal will take a long time to un understand. Why? Right? Yeah. Yes? You understand? Yeah. What is that? What? It's very difficult. So your head is fantastic. Awesome. Magnificent.
So let us shift, come back to the body and bring humor, inner humor, really. Not need to follow always rules and regulation. Of course you have to follow. But sometimes you come back home, you can dance, you can walk this way, side way, you can walk this way, you can like, you know, really like break the, you know, all the head rule, like tightness. The problem is the tightness and serious, responsible and frozen. The frozen in the body. That I really can see. I don't know if you can see yourself or not, but I'm coming from outside. Your head is way away, but the heart is like overloaded to the body, the heart. Uh, you take everything serious, but serious went inside the heart, and the feeling become very serious also, and that I think lose joy, open, uh, carefree, time to time. But don't carefree here. Carefree there, feeling. There, there's a way in which people, they, we can become serious, and there's a kind of there's a way in which people become loyal to their suffering, also that all right I've struggled mm, yeah. and I've suffered, yeah. and I think when people go to see the Dalai Lama. You know, yes, he has all these responsibilities for the people of Tibet, and he's this right. world figure, and in some way he could be really weighted down, but yeah. in fact, I think people go to hear him laugh. Right. Yeah. You know, more than anything, that somebody who has those right. responsibilities can still have so much joy right. and so much happiness, and, and have it be so, uh, you know, it's embodied, and he, yes, he'll weep, and he's concerned yeah. for the world, but underneath is that and, kind of yeah. innocence. Essence love. Essence love. Yeah. So Not based on condition. I think uh, yesterday I watched uh, the interview with Ram Das and uh, Wimby. Oprah. Oprah, Oprah. <laughs> he was talking about this essence love all the way. He found this essence love from India. Mm -hmm. So I think like not too much condition, just well-being. Drop all the concern for a while. No judgment at all. Whatever comes into you, just relax with that. Then I think open comes from the tragedy. Not open. Tragedy is here. Open to come out. Now I'm going to bring the openness. It become more tight. So you go there, your mind go there. <laughs> just there, whatever. I'm sorry to use. I, I'm a, I have edgy language. So please forgive me. Whatever vomiting you have inside, just stay with that. No judge, no follow, and also no improve. I think we have this subtle that trying to avoid that. Yeah. The more you avoid, it will the the body it will cling more, the emotional it will cling more. If you support that, then you are in the vomiting. But just be with that. If you want to clean the vomit, you know, you have to touch, no? Yeah. So you must touch first the raw material of your feeling. The Mambudra treats like this. Whatever stage you are, just be with that. Without any altering, no rejecting, no contrive. And itself will open up. When the mind trusts to that, the wounded start to open up the feeling. And then you can find openness within that. We cannot bring openness from outside. The Ramdas tells this story, just talking about Ramdas from the early years. I don't know if it was on that video with Oprah or not. When he was first going to come back to teach in America mm. after he'd yeah, been with he, his about guru yeah. for a few years, and, and he said, I felt 
so impure that my thoughts, you know, still weren't enlightened enough and I felt, you know, in some ways insecure and imperfect. And how was I going to help people even though his guru said you should just love them? But he, he said, I can't go back, I just feel so imperfect. Mm. And he said his guru got up off the wooden seat and walked around him very slowly, <laughs> kind of peered up and down, all sides, how do you look, you know, bottom to top, looked him in the eye, looked at, and after walking around very slowly, looking really carefully, sat down, and then lo looked him right in the eye and said, I see no imperfections. And mm. to have somebody right. mirror that, right. to say, that, it's essence right, love. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is really love. who you, this is the innocence that you were born with, and that's exactly. what I see. I don't see all that other stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and to see ourselves that way. That is missing here. Yeah. I think we are, yeah, that part I really, really missing. Because we didn't give much time to grow this. Immediately give condition. And the conditioners are quite heavy, and is locked up in. And we stay in the pattern of whatever condition comes in. And that condition is very useful for developing head. But it's quite harmful for the development, emotional development. So now we have a hope that reconnect that essence love. And you will have innermost humor come out. <laughs> Not like humor to make other people happy. And that is become part of social eye. The really deep down trust, drop, be, relax, and then there's like joy come, openness come, humor come, essence love come, and be with that. Most of the time, then zoom, you want to use social eye, it's there all the time for you. So dance between these two. Tiny little story from Pakistan, like India. So mm -hmm. the Pakistani bus, very crowded. <laughs> you know how they are in yeah. India, too. And Mahamid, who's the Pakistani bus conductor, on the back, there's, one, there's the driver in the front, and in the back there's this platform that people yeah. get on, leans out of the bus, pulls up, and he calls out, room for only six more, six more. The bus stops and he counts on six passengers and all these others are waiting. Then he rings the bell so the person driving can hear it, time to drive off. Yeah. And as the bus moves off, he calls back to those left. He says, so sorry, plenty of room in my heart, but bus is full. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And there's something, you know, like you said, in Nepal or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or I saw you in Varanasi. We were on that plane together, yeah. remember? That there's, there's a kind of joy yeah. that's there in people, and it's there in us. Our culture doesn't let us slow down enough yeah, to yeah. feel it. And maybe when you come on retreat, it's not about meditating and having experience. Yeah. It's just slowing down enough to, to love. Yeah, to, yeah. To, you know, to find that joy that you were born with yeah. and let really, it come again. That, that's it, yeah. Plenty of room on the... The bus is full, but plenty of room in my heart. Yeah. Um, we need to finish up in a couple sure. of minutes. Anything sure. more you want to... Uh... But uh, when practice love, quite often we go love immediately trying to give something. That is second love, not the first love. Not first love, that one, I know. That is different first love. 
<laughs> number one love. So, essence love, I think, is the, our core. I I believe is should be a center of the, our emotion. Is essence love. And then, normal love means giving and taking. I love someone. There's an object. Uh, someone loves me. There's a subject here, an object there. So that is that love is very strong. And out of that love, then many other loves, love with their parents, relationship, greasy love, mm. <laughs> businessman's love. I give you, you give me yeah, back. Yeah, greasy relationship. You know? Do you know about that? Greasy, like a, you know, uh, uh, Indian and Chinese food, a lot of greasy. <laughs> so when you are young, you like greasy love. Later indigestion. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Later it causes diarrhea. So sometimes we like we love greasy. I mean, <laughs> sorry about it. So, but become so conditioned love, and then it, it create uh, the essence love less and less. But that is the home, the fire, the flame is love. That then out of that, you know. Greasy love, or you know, sometimes you have a wrong relationship. Then many, many times it's become wounded love. Wounded love has two aspects. One is relationship. One is wounded from the world, because you become the hollow here. You want to like to fill up. <laughs> then you want to, oh, this will make me happy. That will make me happy. So you consume, and you like to be happy, 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 but. When you reach <coughs> that state, it's after one week it becomes normal. Then you want next one, trying to f fill the hollowness. It happened to me one time, two times actually. <laughs> you know, I, uh, <coughs> I, I'm, I wasn't born here, so I become naturalized, become past, uh, citizenship. On the process of citizenship, end of the citizenship, I was so excited. Dream about it. I see America passport. I kiss many times. <laughs> I see in the people's uh, carrying American passport. I look at like this. And then I study about hundred questions. I studied perfectly, memorized everything, understood also the word also. Then just before one month, wow, everything so happy. Then I put uh, the book next to my table. Look at nighttime sleep. First thing morning, I looked at and read. Oh, I feel great. Then the day came, the interview. So I went to the interview. They asked six questions, ten questions, but six passed. Then it's okay. I passed. Everything passed. Then I took oaths next to the toilet. <laughs> One lady chant something, I repeat something. Done. And then they said, Wow, great. They give me an American flag, you know. So you come out, wow, feel good, very happy. Immediately ran to the uh, passport office. I like passport also. <laughs> Citizen I have, the next one is still something need to get. 
So, I, but, but half an hour late, close. I had to wait to Monday. Wow, so happy. Saturday is so happy. Sunday is so happy. And Monday came to reality. I went down, two o'clock, I got the passport. Still happy. Come back home, I kissed the passport, put under the Buddha. <laughs> you know, as an offering. Put under the Buddha and then sleep. Very happy. Morning, wake up. Wow, unhappy. Something's wrong. No more to go. No nirvana, but something like what, What's wrong with me? Lost this uh, driving, craving, because it went to the peak. No more. So I like, uh, then, oh, I realized a little bit like this. Then the second thought came. I think good to be a Switzerland and a Canadian passport. <laughs> this is from Apollinaire, he writes. Now and then it is good to pause in your pursuit of happiness and just be happy. Yeah, I call happy without reason. Yeah, yeah. Just happy. But this one, this follow, need to follow happy without reason. Yeah. If you put so much reason, there's no happy. All the reasons are not reasonable for happiness. Happiness for no cause. Yeah. So we have to finish up. Yeah, please. Um, I'm happy. Good. <laughs> and I'm partly happy because you're here and it's wonderful, so that's the cause. But I'm also happy. So. Um, I have a few announcements to make, and we'll sit for a moment and do a little chant and go out into the evening. Next Monday night, Jacques Verdun will teach, who is, was the head of the Insight Prison Project and is a really wonderful teacher. Um, I want to thank volunteers, and also I really want to thank everybody who carpooled tonight. It's very important for our relationship to the community and the county, um, and we have rideshare board on the website and places in Fairfax and in Berkeley, in San Francisco, in Sonoma, Nevada, various places, please, please carpool in the next few weeks especially. Um, uh, there are some baskets for donations as you go out. On, on one table on the right, you can get your, your copy of Open Mind, Open Heart, Open Mind. Um, and on the table on the left um, are cards and images of the nunneries that Rimache is the abbot of, or the the, he's the supporter of in some way. A fantastic community of several thousand nuns, I believe, um, in Tibet um, who've been practicing in, in quite austere and oftentimes very difficult conditions. And I've seen a film of it uh, that was taken in these nunneries and they're just amazing. So any support you can give to them would be a really beautiful thing. And then there's a basket as well for donations to keep the lights on and support us as teachers and so forth. Whatever you can do is gratefully, gratefully received. A few upcoming events on Sunday, May 27th um, is a day of sacred sexuality, a spiritual practice with Deborah Chamberlain Taylor and George Taylor on Saturday, May 19th, this next Saturday, um, a, a benefit day um, with Philip Moffat, Emotional Chaos to Clarity. Um, uh, there is Sylvia Borstein and um, Barbara um, Bogatin and Cliff Saren are going to do tuning your instrument on June 9th. She's a cellist in the San Francisco Symphony and he's one of the preeminent neuroscientists and it's going to be Dharma music and, 
and, uh, and science, and that should be a wonderful day. Um, there's a family practice day coming up, and mostly we welcome you here. You can come for classes and come walk the land and come on retreats, um, and we're very grateful for your support, and more than that, for your practice and your interest in Dharma um, and your, your willing and good hearts. Um, so I'd like us to do a very simple chant tonight, and then we'll go out into the evening. And here's the chant. In uh, India, when you meet someone, the greeting most common is to put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the essence love in you, the divine, the sacred spark, what was born in you. Um, and the root of that word namaste in Sanskrit is also the word namo, which means to honor or bow to. It starts many, very, many of the Buddhist chants and texts. Um, and what I'd like us to do, there are all kinds of chants that begin with that, but we'll just use that word, is to chant namo together nine times. And as you chant, you can feel what it is that you inwardly would bow to. And it might be to um, the spiritual um, dedication of your life. It might be to the tears that you carry that need to be honored and respected. It might be to some place in the world that you learn from, or it might be to some place in the world that you're concerned about, or someone that you love, or some place that's difficult. Um, and as you chant, each one to offer a bow of respect to all of those things, and especially to yourself. And then we'll go out into the, into the spring, summer, evening. <coughs> So na the essence love that you were born with and a spacious mind wisdom and clarity may they be wedded together in you um, and may you remember to dance thank you thank you Rinpoche thank you everyone thank you for your generosity there's one person who needs a ride to Berkeley and one who needs a ride to San Francisco anyone who can give a ride to Berkeley